0: Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. This month we're talking about Peyton Place, concluding a mini-series of three films that began with King's Row in January and continued with Our Town in February. So this series was called Small Town Blues, drawing connection between Twin Peaks and three films that talk about small towns with their seamy undersides or melancholy tragedies and so forth. Before we get to that uh, review... I just want to update on what my other podcast work is, uh, the latest of those uh, that are up right now. On my Lost in the Movies main podcast feed, I have covered the film Pie, the Darren Aronofsky film, kicking off a series of uh, of discussions of his work. And for patrons on uh, patreon.com slash lost in the movies, I published... Right, I think right after the last Twin Peaks Cinema episode. So I I think I mentioned it in that one, but it wasn't officially up yet. My uh, Twin Peaks Cinema review of the Suite Hereafter, which will be appearing on this public feed in a couple months. But if you want to check that out in advance, it's it's on Patreon. And then for March, my Patreon episode was catching up with a lot of the things that I'd been watching or listening to or thinking about. So I did film and TV capsules. On films like Don't Look Up, The Hunt, I talked about the Olympic documentaries I've been watching, I did some digressions on like the Super Bowl and the group Mazzy Star and what that made me sort of think about generational youth zeitgeists and then a Civil War documentary on Reconstruction and uh, some short films by like the Three Stooges, Disney, some surrealist stuff, a documentary Alone in the Wilderness about a guy who lived in a cabin, Rick Steves, The Holy Land about Israel-Palestine and uh, some other stuff there. So. Uh, that uh, also the last season of Hill Street Blues that I've been talking about, which was a show that Mark Frost wrote for, for, for a while. And uh, these are all capsules. So they're just like minute or two, sometimes a little longer. Don't look up. I think I talk about for like five or six minutes, but you know, not full reviews. And then I also released podcast recommendations from the past year, what I've been listening to that I wanted to point other listeners to. And also my political reflections on subjects like the war in the Ukraine Uh, comparisons between Jimmy Carter and Joe Biden and the conservative mood, the state of the left, and a kind of political pause as, you know, expressing my frustration with some of the political uh, stuff going on now. So if you want to deep dive into that, that's all there. And then uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, I wrote a review of that years ago, and I read it on the podcast as part of my Opening the Archive series. So that's what I was up to there. And on my Twin Peaks Conversations podcast, which is part on YouTube and part on the Patreon $5 a month tier, I spoke to uh, Courtney Stallings, the author of Laura's Ghost, which I think I mentioned on the previous podcast already. So that episode is still up now. I do have another one coming out soon, but uh, not up yet. It'll come out near the end of the month. So that's it for the podcasts elsewhere. Now to focus on Peyton Place. Peyton Place. The town everyone's talking about. All the people of Peyton Place, with all their joys and sorrows, passions and compassions, are on the screen at last. I'm gonna tell you a hard truth about yourself. It isn't sex you're afraid of. You can say yes or no to that. It's love. That's what you can't handle. There's a place I know that I'd like to show you. That no one knows about. Not even you. It's my secret place. Uh, I knew every spot within three miles of Peyton Place. I never knew this place was here. I don't think anybody does but me. Maybe God. Now you. Peyton Place is a 1957 melodrama released by 20th Century Fox. It was based on a best-selling novel and it was one of the big hits of 1957. It was a huge influence on not just film but television as well. Uh, within a decade, it would become the first primetime soap opera, so direct lineage to Twin Peaks there, and eventually even became a daytime soap opera for a little while. Returned to Peyton Place in the 70s and uh, onward until I think the last TV movie was released in the 80s. There was supposed to be a film with uh, Sandra Bullock about the uh, author of the original book, Grace Metellius, but I the film apparently never got made. It was supposed to be made around 2006, which was the 50th anniversary of the book. This film came out very quickly on the heels of that book. So, you know, book, film, TV show, all sensations. And when Lynch and Frost were first approached, probably by Tony Krantz, about making a TV show, he suggested Blue Velvet meets Peyton Place. And so, according to Frost, uh, him and Lynch got together, they screened, they'd never actually seen the film Peyton Place, and they screened it, and they didn't like it at all. They thought, this is dated, this is canned, it doesn't really work, this isn't what we're going for. And I think the inference from Frost is that they didn't end up using much from it. However, you can see quite a lot of traces of Peyton Place in Twin Peaks. Now, whether that's direct influence or just the way that Peyton Place kind of permeated the culture and inevitably showed up in a Twin Peaks, you know, it's funny too that Tony Krantz says Peyton Place meets Blue Velvet because Blue Velvet itself already has some significant traces of, of Peyton Place in it as well, which is interesting. The book takes place in 1941, so even though it's this kind of quintessential 50s pulling off the placid post-war facade to reveal the turmoil underneath, it's actually a pre-war story going into World War II. So that's an interesting decision. The book takes place between 1937 and 43. The film takes place, I believe, just between 41 and 43. So we see a headline about Pearl Harbor at one point in the story and the characters all go off to war and some die there and come back in soldiers' uniforms. I'm always fascinated by films about the World War II era that were made in like the 50s, 60s, or well into the 70s as well. I think the way we were with Barbara Streisand, Robert Redford is a good example of that, where you can see World War II not as this distant event that we kind of revere as the greatest generation and all that that we started getting in the 90s, but as something that was within most people's memories. So, you know, all the way up to the 70s, you could have people who were just in their 30s, young people who remembered World War II and seeing all the people in uniform walking around. And that was just somebody my age back in 1973 would remember that clear as a bell. So anyway, it's a little sidetracked, but I always find that kind of interesting. The story of the film is about all of these characters in the small town, particularly Constance McKenzie played by Lana Turner and her daughter Allison, played by Diane Varsi. They're a middle-class family, a single mother, and her daughter apparently a widow but as we find out as the story goes on of course there's going to be spoilers uh, in this review if you didn't already realize it the daughter finds out that the mother actually had an affair with a married man in new york and uh, that that's the real background so she's like a you know illegitimate child uh, in in the perspective of the times she is somebody that they would disrespect in this town if they knew that. And it's a very gossipy, backstabbing town. But I think that's more present in the novel, in the film. The edges are very softened in a lot of ways. So the novel deals with themes of incest, of abortion, infidelity, rape, all of this stuff. In the film, we get some of that. Abortion in particular is tampered down quite a bit, where The character falls down a hill, and then we see her in the doctor's office, and he says, this was a miscarriage. And then later in a court scene, he says, I assisted her in a miscarriage, which comes about as close as you could get at that time to saying that he he gave her an abortion. But stuff like that, they had to tone down. And actually, even in the novel itself, as we'll talk about, some stuff was toned down from what the author originally intended And uh, she, Grace Metellius, who was pretty young at the time, I think 30, 31, when the book came out, she said, I regarded the men who made Peyton Place as workers in a gigantic flesh factory, and they looked upon me as a nut who should go back to the farm. So they actually brought her out to L.A., mostly for publicity, but... They actually kept her from having much influence on the screenplay. It didn't go that well. And she could see the Hayes office censorship firsthand where they were taking things out and softening it down. She decried the film, even though it made her a lot of money. She ended up dying very young at 39, apparently from from alcoholism. It says the only story I found about her said she drank herself to death. So kind of a tragic outcome for this early success story. And even to, I don't know to this day, but the article I found from 15 years ago, 2006, there were still people in the town where she had lived in New Hampshire, muttering about the the bad legacy that she left behind for their town. You know, they're very ashamed that she exposed it. I mean, it's funny, it really was the blue velvet of its time. I mean, very much so. Without the surrealism, here's the drama going on beneath the surface. And actually, in some ways, more, I don't know if hard-hitting is the right word, but more of an indictment than uh, Blue Velvet because in Blue Velvet there's these criminal elements on the periphery which people are ignoring there's a Jungian dream aspect to it where it's like well are they really on the periphery or is this just manifestation of the subconscious or whatever but within the text of the film these are outsiders these are criminals and they're clearly identified as such not like the good folk of the town whereas Peyton Place, it's much more intermingled Uh, I think particularly in the novel in that sense. Some of the supposedly upstanding citizens are the ones who snipe and ruin people's lives behind their back and drive them out of town. The arc of the movie, by the way, just to kind of give you a quick plot outline, is that Allison uh, wants to become a writer. She's having a romance with a young boy in the town and she ends up fleeing town when her mother uh, when her mother reveals her background to her. And then there's another family, a very poor family that lives on the shack on the outskirts of town where there's an alcoholic stepfather who's abusive and the daughter ends up killing him and hiding the body and going on trial and they have to reveal uh, the his abuse and the abortion and everything or the miscarriage as the film puts it before she's set free. So that's the narrative arc of it. But it's got all these little stories, all these little portraits. I think if you... Look at Peyton Place and Twin Peaks, what they really have in common, which I think even Our Town didn't quite have. You know, I talked about Our Town as a Twin Peaks cinema before the Thornton Wilder play turned into a movie that focuses very much on two families This one, even though there are, again, two families that are kind of the main focus, there's a lot of other stories. They're not even all connected, almost at all. Like, there's very tangential connections, for example, between Allison and uh, uh, one of her friends who ends up marrying, like, the wealthy, the son of the wealthiest man in town. Uh, There's, like, a party scene where we see them together. But other than that, they just go along in their separate trajectories. It almost feels like a proto-pilot for a, a... soap opera, because you have these separate storylines going forward. So in some ways, Peyton Place, even if Frost wasn't that taken with it, does provide the template that Twin Peaks would use uh, for its narrative. And there's also a lot of interesting details along the way that just echo Twin Peaks or predict Twin Peaks, I guess you should say, Twin Peaks, echoes Peyton Place, given the chronology. We have women going comatose due to trauma, so Allison sees the suicide and ends up not speaking for days on end. Very soap opera trope there that is often repeated in Twin Peaks. And then later when she recovers, she leaves town, just like Donna at the end of the series. And again, it's this idea of a good girl who's sort of a goody two-shoes, who's really not content with her reputation and wants to challenge it. You know, you see Donna do this all the time on Twin Peaks, and you see Allison do that a lot in Peyton Place. At one point, she even tells her mother that she wants to you know if a man asked her to become his mistress she would run away with him and her mother is horrified because she remembers her own past and you see that kind of an edge with Donna and that also brings up the subject of children learning about the histories the hidden histories of their parents you see Donna finding this stuff out on the series Audrey finding it out and that's a big part of Allison's story in this film is finally learning the truth about who her mother is and what she's kind of been hiding her from. Some other details that are in this film that reminded me of Twin Peaks, the doctor gives a speech in the courtroom where he very much indicts the townspeople in a murder, saying, you know, in a way, you did this. The shame that you caused, the fact that people couldn't come forward because they were afraid they'd be ridiculed by you your your hypocrisy and your attitudes did this. And that reminded me of Bobby's speech at the funeral for Laura, where he points at the whole town and he says, you did this. And Robert Engels, one of the writers of Twin Peaks, has always said that Laura's death created this sense of guilt that just hovered over the whole town like a fog. And once you took that away, the the story really lost something. And it's interesting that I think even... Early in season two, maybe you could even argue late in season one, the characters are kind of in their own storylines and they lose that sense of intimate connection, like where there's something seedy about the whole town that has. There's something hypocritical, I think I should say, because it's a seediness beneath the pleasant surface that has hurt Laura. And you get that the most in that funeral scene, but that's. Very much the theme of Peyton Place, I think explicitly more so in the book as well. It's funny that Frost said that the film was so dated, but they really went for a 50s atmosphere anyways in uh, Twin Peaks, you know. So even though they rejected the explicit 50s Peyton Place, they still went for something like that. You can see all these little elements in the film that you'd see in Twin Peaks, there's a sign for fresh homemade pies in a diner, coffee and donut sign at a picnic. You have a view from a mountaintop where a young couple look out over the whole town from this peak. You have a mill that's the center of the town business. In this case, it's a textile mill, not a lumber mill. And you have a doctor and a business owner whose personality remind me quite a bit of doc hayward and ben horn respectively the businessman very cynical he's a womanizer he wants his son to live in a certain way but it's like hey you can still go around with those girls behind the scenes you just can't do it officially so kind of inculcating this hypocritical sense of propriety in him and a very canny businessman who has a sense of pride ultimately is somewhat redeemed as well that's another interesting aspect he has a redemption arc just like ben horn does that's certainly reminiscent there so you have all these elements of the small town but it's on the opposite side of the country it's in New England rather than the Pacific Northwest just like our town was interestingly and of course this is the area that i grew up more or less and at one point they go they drive uh two of the characters drive out to the seacoast area i was almost wondering if this was supposed to be the town that i went to high school in which is uh portsmouth new hampshire but it looks more like maine and indeed uh, actually much of the film was film was shot in camden maine it has that wilder maine feeling to it where they look at the lobsters and there's a lighthouse and all of this stuff but for the most part it's a landlocked town in the interior of new hampshire which is Very different from the Pacific Northwest feel. You don't have this sense of wilderness of the woods out there. It's a more pastoral, rural kind of community. And I'm always interested in those contrasts, I think. Those are interesting to consider. Some other elements that you can see here that obviously called Mind Twin Peaks a stranger driving into town to introduce us to it Uh, in this case it's the character Michael Rossi played by Lee Phillips who is the new school principal rather than Agent Cooper but also a young man with some strong ideas of his own who comes to town and challenges them in some ways but also takes to the community and defends it all of that's interesting there's a funny scene though where he goes into Lana Turner's home and he's basically very aggressively demanding that she come out of her shell and date him more or less. Like, it's a funny scene in a couple ways. First of all, because it's like picturing this as some sort of idealized behavior where you just walk into somebody's home where you've met one time and start lecturing them on their life. It's kind of odd. And also, Phillips has this somewhat nasally voice where he almost sounds more like a gangster or something. The gangster aspect with Lana Turner we'll get to in a moment. That's interesting in and of itself. Another element is uh, the picture on the mantle. You have Laura's portrait in Twin Peaks, and in this you have a Constance's dead husband, or as it turns out, her dead not husband. The daughter, every time she walks out the door in the morning, she kisses the photo and says, bye dad, or whatever, and the mother's uncomfortable with this, even though she keeps the portrait around. So you have this haunting picture of somebody who's dead and it gets smashed like in uh, Twin Peaks as well at some point, knocked off the mantle in an act of violence as new things are learned. There's also, uh, just like Harold is found hanging in Twin Peaks, you have the wife of the stepfather who's abusing the girl in the shack. She is made at... Constance's house and they come in and find her hanging in the closet she killed herself after finding out about what had happened between her daughter and the stepfather so coming across this body swinging there certainly very reminiscent of that and also the shots of Allison walking to school in the beginning of the movie reminded me very much of Fire Walk With Me to the point where I almost wonder if that was a touchstone for Lynch when he was making Fire Walk With Me what's the quintessential Americana thing we could do to show this all-American girl before we delve into the corruption and the abuse and everything she's dealing with and maybe borrowing from that idyllic sequence in Peyton Place. I don't know. It's just just an interesting thought. But of course, the aspect of Firewalk Walk With Me and really Twin Peaks as a whole that I think most sharply aligns with Peyton Place is the theme of incest. And in Peyton Place, it's softened in the novel as well. This is something that even the published version where they could get away with a lot more, they made it her stepfather. And actually, uh, Metellius, the author, was upset about this. She wrote it as actually being the girl's father. And this was based on something that had really happened in one of these small... New Hampshire towns where a father had been abusing the girl for years. And I think she was only like 14 or something. And she killed him and hid him out in like the sheep pasture, like buried him out back, which is what happens in this story and the editor just thought, no, 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 this is too taboo, we we can't, we'll make him the stepfather, so it's not really quote-unquote her father, and she felt this was, she, she was not happy with this at all, the author, as early as the book stage, so you can imagine how upset she was with the film, with all the changes that they made. Nonetheless, in the film, it's still pretty stark and disturbing, where you have this stepfather who's presented as the parent, eventually, like, he's leering at her a lot, and you can tell he's kind of jealous and possessive, there's a lot of jealous and possessive parents in this film, but this is kind of extreme version of that and uh, he ends up raping her one night and uh, you can hear the train passing by as he corners her in the bed which of course calls to mind the scene of the train whistle blowing in the distance as laura is crying in her room leland comes in and says oh i love you and kisses her on the head and walks out and all of that and you hear the train in the distance which is a sound that lynch likes to play with anyways but interesting connection to see that here as well and the girl even looks a little like laura like she's blonde as i i think i said and uh, has a very striking face she's played by hope lang who we will talk about as this goes along and the father is played by arthur kennedy and it's interesting because they're a poor family he's this interloper in many ways even though he did grow up in the community you know he lives on the margins of it so he's in that sense more of a bob figure and actually the girl's boyfriend the character is Hope Lang plays selena cross that's it right so selena she uh, her boyfriend is actually going to be a lawyer like he's planning to go to law school so you have him going in this respectable route and of course firewalk Lee really interestingly and twin peaks uh, even though they have the figure of bob as an exculpatory figure i think until the film complicates that leland is this respectable lawyer so you have more of a blurring of those social roles where this kind of goes the safer route of like oh the hillbilly stepdad is incestuous because that's what they do type of thing that sort of stereotype and there's actually even a scene where after the father the doctor tells the father he gets him to sign a paper which will eventually rescue the daughter saying that he did this so that he won't broadcast his uh, his actions to the whole town he says this is if you just sign this deal with it you know, the daughter doesn't want anyone to know, but you leave town now. And as the father's getting ready to leave, he sees the, or the stepfather sees the daughter and he chases her in the woods. This kind of terrifying primal scene where he's chasing her through the woods and she's hiding behind trees. And that very much calls to mind the end of Fire Walk With Me, where Leland pursues her into the woods and then eventually races her through the woods as a, as a captive in that case, getting ready to kill her. I guess the note to end on a couple, there are two notes that I would like to end on. Uh, For one thing, there's an interesting real-life connection here with Peyton Place. This part doesn't have to do with Twin Peaks, but it's just very interesting. Lana Turner was dating a gangster named Johnny Stempanato. He was a bodyguard for a high-up mob figures, and he was very abusive towards her, and eventually her 14-year-old daughter, Cheryl Crane, stabbed him. So you have two big connections to the film here, which is one, the idea of this daughter and her mother in this sort of fraught relationship she's dealing with the legacy of the the mother like Allison and Constance the character that Lana Turner plays in the film but also of course the character of selena killing this abusive man and the fact that this story was so life imitating fiction and that it happened within a year of the film it actually resulted in a 32% ticket increase the week that this murder happened and this figure stamp he was such a jealous guy he went to scotland where lana turner was filming a movie with sean connery and confronted sean connery with a gun and connery actually disarmed him almost like a james bond thing like actually forced the gun out of his hand beat him up up and got him deported from the country. So that's kind of interesting. And apparently when Auto died before they figured out what happened, some of the gangsters thought Connery might've had something to do with it. So he had to disappear for a while. If you go down this Wikipedia route, Cheryl Crane, Sean Connery, tons of interesting stuff. So that's its own side note, nothing to do with Twin Peaks, but I had to mention it. And the last Twin Peaks connection I want to mention is the cast, or I guess Lynch- David Lynch broadly connection I want to mention is the cast members. Uh, Hope Lang, who is really superb here as Selina, one of the best performances in the film, certainly one of the most striking. Uh, she was twenty three or 24 at this time that this was shot and 30 years later in her 50s she plays the mother of laura dern in blue velvet and on top of that the connection does not stop there because uh she is married to don murray who plays bushnell mullins in season three of twin peaks so there's another interesting connection there and actually his son their son together plays uh, one of the cops in the South Dakota scenes. Now, of course, the big Twin Peaks connection, which I've saved for last, is uh, the character of Norman Page. This is the boy that Allison sees for a while because it's misunderstood or misinterpreted by the people around. He is an interesting withdrawn figure who's very shy. His mother is overbearing, and he's reminiscent of Harold Smith, I think, in some ways. He is played by Russ Tamblin, Dr. Jacoby. That's it for this episode. If you've seen Peyton Place, or have any thoughts about the film or the series, which I'm not familiar with at all, I'd actually be interested to hear from someone who likes Twin Peaks and has also seen the Peyton Place soap opera and has thoughts about it, uh, please write in. I'll share that feedback on future podcasts. You can also send me a recording if you want. I can always just pop in the audio. And of course, if you enjoy this work, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That helps out a ton, as does sharing these episodes on social media. Hopefully, I think these. this is such a interesting kind of direction to go in talking about films and their connections to Twin Peaks that I would hope anybody who might be interested in that gets the opportunity to know it's out there and uh, I want to end with a teaser for the next month's episode uh, with Small Town Blues that that series, that sort of season of Twin Peaks cinema over now we're going to shift to something I'm calling traumatic transformations which is films about characters who experience some sort of psychological trauma and loss, or um, often like abuse, and how these characters and these films deal with that question, often in a sort of a mythic way. I think all three of these films have that component, although only two of them have like an overtly supernatural tinge. In, in one case, the character thinks something supernatural happened, and in the other... It's uh, it it is sort of embedded in that larger kind of magical framework, and then in the uh, third film, there's like a fairy tale motif throughout, even though it's a very realistic film. So I'll let you know what the first of those is with this teaser. It's a Japanese animation called Belladonna of Sadness. 誰か